Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. My name is Anne Rubenstein. I'm a historian at York University in Toronto, and I'm here with Molly Ladd-Taylor, a professor of history at York University in Toronto, um, who is going to talk with us about her book, Fixing the Poor, Eugenic Sterilization and Child Welfare in the 20th Century, which was published by Johns Hopkins Press in 2017 and is just out in paperback um, now in 2020. Um, so, hi Molly. Um, would you tell us something about how you came to write this book? Um, so, what did you, uh, what, what questions were you asking and what was your intellectual formation and how did your previous work bring you to uh, write this book? First of all, thank you, Anne, for having this conversation with me about this book. I'm really excited about it. I have spent my whole career really studying the politics of motherhood and child welfare in the United States. My first book uh, was called Mother Work, which examined the concept of mother work in the dual meaning of the term, the social history of female caregiving, and the politics of maternalist organizing. I was particularly interested in how maternalist reformers in social settlements and the US Children's Bureau used the image of the good mother, good but overburdened poor mother to build a public health system and welfare system they thought would protect poor children and mothers through policies like the Shepherd Towner Maternity and Infancy Protection Act of 1921. And then I realized that at exactly the same time that the health and welfare system was being built by women reformers, there was also a crusade to sterilize the unfit and uh, enact eugenic policies. So I turned my attention to bad mothers and bad kids who were deemed a social menace. So I really began thinking about good mothers and kids and then turned my attention to uh, the so-called bad mothers and kids. Think poverty and the connections between the supposedly private world of families and the public world of politics and policy are the connecting themes in my work. And um which leads us to the question, so what does this, how does this book, um, how did this book then build on that previous work and how did, um, how did it contradict it? How did it support uh, earlier findings and what are its main arguments? Well, Fixing the Poor, as I said, it differs from my earlier work in that it focuses on the so-called underside of maternalist welfare organizing uh, and other forms of public health interventions in focusing on the eugenics movement. 
there's a lot of scholarship on eugenics and on eugenic sterilization specifically. And I think my book, Fixing the Poor, differs from most of this scholarship because it focuses less on eugenics discourse, on racial ideology and the science of human heredity than on the routine administration of eugenic sterilization policy in, in one state. I focus on how eugenic sterilization was implemented in one state. And I look at Minnesota. I look at Minnesota rather than the states we know the most about, uh, such as California or North Carolina or Virginia, all of which had much more aggressive and more racist eugenics programs. And I focus on Minnesota, which is more ordinary or even a best case scenario. It wasn't as extreme as these other states. Uh, nevertheless, Minnesota passed a sterilization law in 1925, and it eventually sterilized about uh, 2,350 people. 80% of them are women. So my main argument is that eugenic sterilization in Minnesota, and I suggest elsewhere as well, was driven as much by state and local welfare politics and concerns than by the idea of building a better race for the future. That is, eugenics and eugenic sterilization in particular is really about trying to reduce the public, the taxpayers' uh, responsibility, economic responsibility for caring for the dependent poor, much more than trying to create a a superior race in the future. It's all about the money in a lot of ways. I think there's three other aspects of my book that are also uh, unique in the literature on eugenics. The first is that I look at sterilization's place within the child welfare system, again, rather than in a, a nexus of doctors and institutional leaders and theorists who wrote about eugenics. The second thing, so child welfare is the first thing. The second thing is I look at how institutionalization, eugenic se segregation, if you will, how that was always inseparable from sterilization as a social policy. It wasn't the case that first there was institutionalization, then there was sterilization in a chronological framework. They were very much part of the same uh, system. Sterilization was the price of freedom from a state institution and institutionalization was always the threat if people who had been sterilized misbehaved when they were on the outside. And the third thing that I think makes my book different is that I foreground disability as an analytic category. 80% of those sterilized in Minnesota were uh, a, called feeble-minded a legal category. Uh, and I look at how the attribution of disability, intellectual disability and abnormality, legitimized the mistreatment of poor people, a range of poor people, people who had disabilities, people who were racialized, uh, and people who uh, were nonconformists or uh, delinquent, to use those words, uh, in, that, uh, in that same period. So that's what I think my, my book brings to 
uh, the literature on eugenics and sterilization. Um, so all of that, I can, I can see the connections with the history of childhood and the history of children, but um, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about how this is, um, how this is connected to history of childhood and how, why historians of childhood really, really need to read your book. Oh, thank you for that question. <clears throat> Minnesota is unusual among some of the states uh, that uh, enacted sterilization laws. And that is because in Minnesota, the legal and administrative foundation for the eugenic sterilization law was laid in the 1917 Children's Code. The Children's Code was a much praised package of laws that modernized Minnesota's child welfare apparatus. It's well known to historians of childhood because the 1917 Children's Code uh, made the first modern adoption law that provided confidentiality and became, made the state a party to every adoption. It also was considered forward-looking because it was very progressive on illegitimacy. Now, the Children's Code defined some groups of children, disadvantaged children, particularly the dependent poor children, like uh, children who were illegitimate, for example, or called illegitimate, and children who were delinquent. It defined them as innocent children uh, for the first time. Really, the, ch it, the Children's Code defined dependent and delinquent children as innocent in the same way that Viviana Zelizer talks about the, the shift from the 19th century economically useful child to the ideal of, by the 1920s and 30s, the economically worthless but emotionally priceless child. The Children's Code was very much a part of this in that it defined dependent and delinquent children as innocent, as emotionally priceless, but it defined children called defectives, feeble-minded children, to use those terms at the time, as a public menace. So-called defective children were children with disabilities who might be institutionalized at the state uh, school for the so-called feeble-minded. And it, they were also sometimes aggressive boys who acted out, who had intellectual disabilities. Uh, and sometimes they would be de delinquent girls, sex delinquents, girls who got pregnant uh, or who had uh, venereal disease. So many of though, and so this children's code, <clears throat> it empowered or it, it enabled dependent and delinquent children to live outside of institutions, and in that sense, it extended community surveillance, but I think it's better to live in the community than to be forcibly institutionalized. But it still, it mandated the compulsory commitment and institutionalization of those who had been ordered by a court, uh, who'd been designated feeble-minded or defective by a court. <clears throat> so. So the first way that my book speaks to historians of childhood is through this framework of the children's code and the legal and administrative foundation, defining some children as innocent and others 
as bad and defective. But another way it connects to the history of childhood is through the very concept of feeble-mindedness, which was very much bound up with childhood. And again, think about it in terms of the children's code. So in a legal sense, this concept of feeble-mindedness is a legal category. And those who were feeble-minded, designated in court as feeble-minded, were children, permanent children, in a legal sense. Regardless of age, they were wards of the state. They were defined as permanent children who were deprived, as are all children, of the right to vote, the right to own property, or marry without the state's permission, or make their own medical decisions. So they were deprived of the rights of adults in exchange for the protection that was extended to so-called children. And in fact, in the state institutions, the residents of the Faribault School for the Feeble-Minded, which was the main place that sterilizations were performed, residents were called children regardless of age. So there's a legal and administrative framework that those who were sterilized were designated children, regardless of whether or not they were mothers, and many of them were single mothers. Also, it connects my book connects uh, the concept of feeble-mindedness to childhood uh, in a conceptual way as well. Many historians are well aware, especially historians of childhood, that psychologists like G. Stanley Hall and others understood uh, racialized and so-called feeble-minded persons as representing the childhood of the race. And in that sense, uh, childhood and so-called feeble-mindedness or intellectual disability were uh, very much entwined in a conceptual way as well. And this continued from the height of the eugenics period and Minnesota's sterilization uh, policy, which was really reached its peak in the 20s and 30s. But after the Second World War, in the era of reform, as many historians are aware, parent activists, parents of children with intellectual disabilities, uh, like the National Association uh, for Retarded Children, they uh, defined their children as the so-called mentally retarded as permanent children now who were innocent children and could live in the community in that way as well. So throughout the whole history that I look at in my book from really the 1880s in the beginnings of the institutionalization movement, even before people were talking about eugenics using that language, uh, well into the 1970s when Minnesota's sterilization law was changed, there's a strong intersection between children and the so-called feeble-minded. Right. Um, so, I have a whole bunch of other questions for you, um, but I'm going to start with this one. Um, so what you've talked to us about so far is sort of the um, conceptual frameworks, the legal and administrative frameworks, but one of the things that I find um, the most 
wonderful about your book is the way that you interweave these frameworks with um, these frameworks with these sort of individual level and institutional level stories um, that you've managed to do this, this fantastic job of reconstructing at least passages in the lives of many individuals in Minnesota and in some cases outside of Minnesota. So um, my first question is, how did you do that? It's, it's just a remarkable achievement to me. Um, and my second question, which maybe you could answer at the same time, more or less, is um, how would you tell us some of these stories? So tell us about um, the Faribault Institute or tell us about some of the people who passed through there um, or more broadly who um, existed within these frameworks of um, law and uh, ideology in Minnesota. Well, thank you for that question. Uh, it was a lot of work. I looked at uh, I, what I was really interested in was how people got ensnared in the net of Minnesota's eugenics welfare system. And again, most scholars who have done fabulous work on sterilization and institutionalization have looked largely at the records of state eugenics boards. Uh, and they've found a lot of really important information about that. Minnesota didn't have a eugenics board. Uh, and the disadvantage of that is that I was scrambling all over looking at the records of the state institution for the feeble-minded and of some of the institutions that channeled people there, especially the Sock Center Homeschool for Girls, which was uh, an institution for uh, delinquent girls. But I also looked at county welfare boards, court records, and many other uh, records in order to try to get a sense of how people got caught in that, uh, in that net. And in some ways, the advantage of not having a great uh, data source was that I had to scurry around and I asked a different question rather than looking at the group of people who were sterilized and trying to figure out what was their demographic profile. I looked at uh, young women, particularly those designated sex delinquents because I had the best case files for them in uh, the records of the Sock Center Homeschool. And I was able to tease out why some of these, one of my big questions is why some girls, and most of them were girls or young women in their 20s, why some of them got stuck in this uh, system where they were institutionalized and then sterilized, and others didn't. So there's a lot of uh, poor young women in Minnesota who got pregnant out of wedlock and uh, might be sent to Sock Center, but then weren't institutionalized and sterilized. So why some and not others? And I found that <clears throat> some of the stories were incredibly heartbreaking uh, when I, so through the Sock Center, I would find women like uh, Edna Collins, for example, who came from what was considered uh, a challenging home life. Her, uh, her, her mother was disabled from polio. She had a number of siblings, a lot of ill health, dire poverty in the family. Uh, and her family was, was really struggling. And uh, then she began acting out in her, nine in her teens. 
hanging out with older men uh, and, uh, and so on, becoming a sex delinquent, her mother couldn't control her, and so on. Uh, uh, not an atypical story, but then when we look uh, into the records, we can see her first sex ex sexual experiences are with a much older man. Today, in the Me Too era, we would see this as, as certainly sexual abuse, sexual harassment, even rape. Uh, many of those uh, stories of these young women who found themselves uh, ensnared in this system were women who had been uh, abused. Uh, there's another case of a young girl named Sarah Berger who uh, first went to, well, she was walking down when she was about a, a very young child, walking in the, uh, alongside with her cousin, and she, they were jumped by some boys who uh, harassed them and did nasty things to them. They complained, that's fine. Uh, but then a few years later, when she was around 12, I think, uh, she complained that one of these boys, you know, all from the same small community, was bothering her again. So at this time, she was sent away, not the boy, but she was sent away because she was a sex delinquent and she was a little bit odd. Was she odd because of her experience of sexual abuse? Well, quite possibly she was. And she was ended up being taken to the SOC Center and then she uh, had trouble adjusting there. And then she was sent to the Faribault Institution where she was sterilized and eventually released. The records of the state institution and the sterilization records are filled with stories like that, really tragic stories of young girls who, for a variety of reasons, sometimes for disabilities, but perhaps most often because of their early sexual experiences that in this day and age, we would consider to have been uh, sexually abused or exploited, sometimes by family members. There's lots of stories of incest. We can see how these young girls uh, would act out and then they would be defined as feeble-minded. Uh, and because the term feeble-mindedness was a very open-ended term that uh, was used oftentimes for, for kids who just really struggled to, to fit in. So these stories, we unfortunately don't have, can't really capture the whole life experience of these young people who were sterilized, but we can see glimpses of them as they pass through the records of the state institution. It seems that most often what happened was that young people would be committed to the state institution as feeble-minded, eventually institutionalized for a few years of so-called training, and then they would be sterilized and released. Sometimes in the 1920s, they were sent to a, like a halfway house a club uh, for like the Lyndhurst Club or uh, a number of clubs in the Twin Cities. And there was one in Duluth as well that were kind of where they could be monitored. Often they returned uh, to their family lives, to ordinary working class lives. And the real tragedy is that some of these uh, young people had been unwed mothers and one of the sad aspects of their stories that really isn't given enough due in uh, scholarship on eugenics is that the children that they already had 
uh, they lost those children too. They would be adopted out uh, and placed with other families and it would be very difficult for those considered feeble-minded to raise the children that they already had. Yeah, that is a very painful story. Um, a, actually, I think that, uh, that, that leads me to another question, which is um, how much has your, how, how much have you been able to uh, contribute to um, the sort of, I guess it's a political movement really about undoing some of the harms of uh, eugenic sterilization and of this entire um, state system of institutionalizing girls and women. Um, have you been in contact with any of the families of um, the people who this affected or, you know, have you, what's, what's happened since then and how has your work contributed to that? Well, a lot has happened. I can't say that my work has contributed to it very much because there's already a very active disability rights movement and a movement for self-advocates in Minnesota and elsewhere uh, that I was fortunate enough to, uh, to see in action. So in Minnesota, there, the then governor Tim Pawlenty apologized for the mistreatment of people with disabilities in institutions and sterilization, but more broadly, uh, especially in the state institutions, that happened in 2010. In a number of other states, there have also been apologies uh, for mostly for sterilization. Minnesota's apology is unique in that it extends beyond sterilization to also look at other forms of abuse, and particularly institutionalization. So the uh, Self-advocates and disability rights movement in Minnesota has done uh, a, a ton of important work in uncovering and uh, taking oral histories of these uh, of people who were institutionalized in Minnesota. Mostly, the sterilization, at least under this eugenics law, uh, took place in or ended in the aftermath of World War II. And uh, the law, so st sterilizations peaked uh, in the late 1930s, really fell off in World War II, both for medical reasons, they just didn't have enough surgical nurses and doctors available to continue to perform the surgeries in the war. And then after the war, uh, there was reform period in, um, in Minnesota and elsewhere uh, in terms of dealing with institutions and also more uh, um, uh, prosperity, so a real shift in ways of thinking about the so-called feeble-minded and uh, their uh, capabilities. There were also reformers who, a uh, reformer particularly in Minnesota, a psychiatrist, medical director of the public uh, welfare system uh, named David Vale, who put a stop to, to routine sterilizations in the late 1950s. So not that sterilizations didn't continue, but in Minnesota, the real heartbreak and horror was through institutionalization and of course, continuing poverty. So one of my arguments and Alex, Alexandra Minister in uh, for California has done really important work in terms of uh, apologies and working on getting a compensation, the same with Johanna Shun's work in North Carolina 
in Minnesota, uh, there has been less success at getting uh, recompense in part because most of the eugenic sterilizations were performed uh, many, much longer ago. Uh, but one of the things that I think is really important in terms of thinking about uh, apologies for eugenics and for sterilization is what's ended and what hasn't ended. So mostly eugenic sterilizations have ended uh, in, since the 1970s and beyond. This is partly for technological reasons. Now there's a lot of other uh, forms of, uh, of of uh, birth control uh, rather than sterilization, whether it's Norplant or uh, abortion and, and so on. Uh, but what hasn't really changed is the ways that the so-called the public and so-called taxpayers are often uh, unwilling to pay uh, to support those they considered the undeserving poor. So a number of scholars are talking now about how in some ways prisons today serve the same role that institutions, mental hospitals and institutions for the so-called feeble-minded served in the 1930s, 40s, 50s and 60s and into the 70s. So a number of states, including Minnesota, have issued apologies for eugenics and for sterilization, but a lot of the uh, abuses and the inequalities continue on to this day. And we see this in the current pandemic where healthcare is being rationed and people with disabilities and older people are perhaps considered not to have lives as valuable as others when we have so few ventilators. And of course, we're seeing the shocking and horrifying high rates of deaths in the pandemic in, among African Americans and other racialized communities. So those are other ways that uh, eugenics, I think, uh, still reverberates to this day. Fortunately, there is uh, an active and vibrant disability rights movement uh, throughout uh, North America, uh, but it's uh, a tall order, especially in these economic hard times, to really make some changes. It is. And um, which brings me to the, the last um, question, which is um, what, uh, what were some of the difficulties that you faced in um, doing this research and reconstructing this history and analyzing this history? And what remains to be studied? So what should future historians of children and of childhood uh, look to um, as possible areas of inquiry uh, building on your work? Well, in terms of the challenges, I think one of the challenges that any historian of eugenics, sterilization, uh, institutionalization, mental health, uh, and patient uh, concerns experiences is the questions of um, both intellectual, uh, both privacy and uh, HIPAA privacy uh, laws that are, are supposed to protect patients, but actually often end up protecting uh, states and hospitals and other institutions 
that makes it really difficult to uncover uh, what was really happening. And alongside of those difficulties, just accessing uh, the documents and the information about who was sterilized, who was affected by these programs, uh, we also have the, the problem of uh, the continuing shame and stigma. It's not like it's over. Uh, this is continued on and it's very recent and many people uh, are still very much uh, ashamed and hurt and so it's really uh, important for historians to be respectful and uh, to be aware of the uh, of the particular challenges that uncovering this history uh, can take and many people want to be uh, just many of the patients and patients' families uh, want to uh, remain anonymous just as, uh, well, not just as, but similar to the problem that with challenge that we face that many uh, states and institutions don't want to know what happened either. So we have a lot of secrecy and uh, challenges that historians have to face and have to address with sensitivity. In terms of what remains to be done, there's a lot. Eugenics and sterilization. Sterilization was a state-level policy uh, enacted locally uh, in counties, in states across uh, the United States, and in provinces in Canada as well. So it's really, uh, although eugenics was an international movement, it was implemented at a state and a local level. So in order to really understand the full uh, ramifications of those policies, we need a lot more state and local research because it played out differently in every locale. And we really can't get a sense of, of how it all fits together without doing more of these kind of state level uh, studies, not just of how a state law was passed or not passed, but also of how it was implemented on the ground. And in that sense, what I hope I've done with Minnesota is provide some um, a model or some suggestions of how historians working in other locales might begin to uncover what was happening in uh, other locations as well. Wow, that's a lot. Thank you so much. We've run out of time, I'm afraid. Um, but I, I know that people who are interested um, can probably get in touch with you and ask you follow-up questions. Um, and um, I, I know you to be an extremely generous um, and collaborative scholar. So um, I'm just sort of putting that out there. Um, so thank, thank you, you so much. much. That was really interesting and exciting. And um, Oh, wait, one last question. Um, so what are you working on next? Well, my next project is uh, an effort to really take my fixing the poor framework and look at children in the post-war period in the era when I'm calling it damaged kids and looking at how these same issues uh, continued with so-called delinquent and uh, children who suffered from cultural deprivation and learning disabilities and uh, really to interrogate how these same kinds of concerns, the connection between so-called bad mothers and bad kids uh, in the post-war period. So just at the beginning of that project though. How exciting. 
Uh, well, I'll look forward to following the, your uh, following along with your research process as you go through that one. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Anne. Take All care. Right. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. S-H-C-Y dot org.